Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. the house of pod my name is kave hoda i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly i'm going to be your host for today's um fun little medical podcast and uh today we're going to be talking to two special guests uh two people i really enjoy first i'm going to welcome back to the show rax king a writer who i really enjoy whose books include tacky and the people's elbow um and you also have a newsletter and a podcast. Is that correct, Rax? It's correct. I don't uh, have a job, so I have to, you know, just keep myself busy by inflicting media on people from every content, angle I content, can think content, of. Content, 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 yeah, yeah, I'm Mrs. Content. Your content is fantastic. Although I'm going to admit, I haven't listened to the podcast yet. I am going to. <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about what, what it is? Can I? Yeah. Uh, so I will say for anyone else who wants to get into my podcast, we're on, uh, let's call it extended hiatus for right now because my co-host Amber Rollo just had a baby, but uh, it's called Low Culture Boil. And every week we dissect a different element of uh, trash culture, pop culture, things of that nature. It's super fun. So uh yeah, you can't afford not to listen to my podcast. <laughs> oh, I like it. A little threat there. Yeah, I will find you. <laughs> <laughs> and also joining us is, this is this might blow your mind, Ryan, but this is your 19th appearance on the House of Pod. Ryan Marino, Dr. Ryan Marino, toxicologist, ER doctor, 
overall good egg. Brian, welcome back. I am so glad to be back. I can't believe it's only 19. I know. I know. It's not enough. It is just not enough. And I also Cheers to, to 19 more. Cheers. Um, I also have to tell you, this is my 200th episode. And and I can't think of two better people to have on for, for number 200 than, than you guys. So thank Aww. you for joining me. Um, today, we're going to talk about uh, something that we have maybe discussed on the show before. Well, not maybe. We've discussed in, in different uh, settings, but... I thought it'd be fun to have you two on at the same time to discuss this topic because we're going to come at it from two different angles and and I think it'll give us some different perspectives on something that's really important and that is addiction. Uh, I'm going to talk about addiction in general and then we're also going to talk about addiction and the physician because Rax, you're not a doctor technically, but... Well, I, I would argue that I have a doctorate in cocaine use for sure. Yeah. yeah. I've put in the field time. <laughs> like pro level. <laughs> you did the time. You did the work. I, I appreciate yeah. that. I will not take that from you. Um, <laughs> but no, I'm not a doctor. I'm a writer. Let's. But but you have written about addiction a little bit in your newsletter, which, by the way, is fantastic. Um, and we'll plug that. Uh, make sure I don't forget to plug that. I really want to plug that at the end. But you, you've written about uh, addiction and you've written about sobriety as well. Um let me start by asking you a question, uh, the basic question. What do you feel you were addicted to, um, and when did you know? Well, it's a, kind of an interesting phenomenon. I mean, I have kind of done bootleg sobriety for, call it the past 10 years. I had a uh, heroin problem when I was in college, and kicked that and people talk about how heroin is just like the hardest thing to kick it's impossible i really didn't find that to be the case and i got cocky and uh <laughs> then just kind of launched from there into having an olympic grade drinking problem and uh cocaine goes really good with drinking too much because it allows you to drink more without getting sloppy so that just kind of came along for the ride at some point. And then all of that really makes it sound like I was just kind of happy-go-lucky tripping down the, the drug addiction fantastic. But really, <laughs> that wasn't the case either because both my parents, uh, from the time I was born, were serious about AA. They were both really into AA. So the way I think of it, I really never didn't know I was going to have problems with addiction I just kind of you know you can know that about yourself and still face it as like an inevitability when the time comes well you know that's something that's really interesting about your writing um I didn't know it until recently when I was reading your newsletter but you're because you've talked about your relationship with your father it's a very sweet relationship and in your newsletter you you write about how your father exposed you to his history of addiction and he would take you to NA meetings. And you almost seems like you kind of grew up in that setting, you know, growing up in the corner while your dad's in the meeting with these other people. And he was very upfront with you. Um, and I have a couple of questions about that. Knowing that you had these parents that had a history of addiction and them being very upfront with you about it and being exposing you to it, did you almost feel like resigned 
to the fact that you were going to be an addict at some point yourself? Or did you, because I feel like it can go multiple ways when you're a kid of, of an addict. How did you feel um, in that situation? Uh, yeah, I, I think that I probably did have that sense of, well, this is coming for me. I mean, my parents always really emphasize that like alcoholism tends to be genetic and you see it, you know, in entire families a lot of the time. And so I did grow up with that in my head. But that said, I mean, you know, when you're a little kid you and you just don't know what anything is, you know, you have to, you have to learn all of that stuff for the first time. And so even knowing that I would most likely have problems with addiction, I was still young enough that I didn't know what that meant. And like, I knew that both my parents were sober. They had told me so, but I didn't know what sober meant really. I didn't mm -hmm. think, you know, I didn't put together that drugs and alcohol were the thing that they were sober from. I just had like all these kind of, I don't know how to describe it. Like they would tell me stuff like that. I would go to my dad's meetings and I did pick up on how there was, there was never alcohol in our house. Like there might casually be alcohol in other people's houses, but I just didn't put any of the pieces next to each other. Like I, I didn't know what sober meant and I didn't really know what addiction meant. And at the same time, I kind of always envisioned that both those things would be part of my future. Do you feel like your dad's goal in, in exposing you to it early was to protect you? Is that why he was like, I'm going to bring you to these meetings. I'm going to show you this so you are never in this position. Was that what he was thinking? And do you feel like um, it maybe helped you somehow in the long run? Yeah, I definitely think it did help me in the long run. Um, Honestly, my dad was like ever the realist about this stuff. I don't even know if he was optimistic enough to be like, I can protect my child from this. But I definitely think that he wanted me to know what my options were, you know, it, when the time came. And he probably wanted me to feel comfortable talking to him about it and uh, things of that nature. You know, I don't know that he ever thought he could avert my becoming an addict maybe he did but i think that he always wanted me to feel like it was just a comfortable topic and i, I think i always kind of did yeah like he wanted to prepare you for it if you were to be if you were ever to deal with it you would know how he wanted to give you sort of the tools almost for knowing how to then handle an addiction yeah and like he also would casually talk to me i mean once i was a little older, like a teenager, he would talk to me about the time he spent in the Betty Ford Center. And, you know, he and his friends would all of his friends had known him from the time that he was still doing stuff. And they would all joke about like, what a fuck up he used to be. And so I was like, oh, okay, like this, there's a dark and scary side to this stuff. But it's not just grim the whole way through, which I actually think is maybe an important message to mm -hmm. give more generally about addiction is that like, yeah, it can really fuck up your life, but also you shouldn't be so afraid that it's going to fuck up your life that when it does start to fuck up your life, you just throw your hands up and you're like, I'm in it now. I might as well. Like, I think there's this real sunk cost fallacy that comes up for a lot of people confronting their own addictive behaviors. You know, one one thing I uh, appreciate about you, Rax, that I've sort of like n just noticed from our limited interactions together is that you're you're very much a realist 
and you're very pragmatic, but not in a defeatist or depressing sort of way. And I bet you got that from your dad. And that sounds like the kind of thing that you, you, you sort of inherited, you know, from him, which is that you're like, okay, here is my situation kind of, uh, sucks. This part of it sucks. This is how we're going to sort of deal with it and address it. Um, is, is that, is that your mentality to sobriety that, yeah, it's going to kind of suck. This whole situation is going to kind of suck, but I'm going to sort of deal with it this way. And this, and this is because I've seen it done before. I know it can be done. I know you can recover and you can maintain sobriety. Is that, is that something that you feel? Yeah, I think it is. And it's also, you know, I'm in my thirties now and I'm kind of hitting an age where I'm not the only sober person anymore. Like other friends are starting to join me. And something that I think actually really benefited me when I was making the decision to get sober and also sticking by the decision to get sober is that I just had it modeled for me by my father and also by my mother. I mean, my father was always, you know, a little more like, let's make a joke of it. All this stuff, you know, is just part of life. And my mom had been sober for less time than him and I think was a little less, uh, just less inclined to tackle it from that angle but either way I mean both of them were really committed to it and to see that modeled for me when I was young was I think more helpful than not but also both of them came at it pretty much exclusively from the rooms of AA like that was the bedrock of their sobriety for both of them and uh, I don't go to AA myself so I think that you know that pragmatic part of myself definitely does question that decision and definitely does like wonder if if I'm doing sobriety wrong based on everything that I learned about it when I was young but I think by and large it really doesn't pay to make more of a melodrama out of trying to get sober than than it already has to be I mean I definitely had some really dark times with it and I found it really difficult and there are times even now when I still get tempted by the demon rum but uh I think that that a dose of like perspective and pragmatism is critical or at least has been critical for me in maintaining a little distance from from the story of sobriety and just pursuing it on my own terms, if that makes sense. One thing that I really like about the story about you and your father's relationship and how he kind of like exposed you to this and taught you about things is just that there is this positive side to kind of substance use addiction and that journey that gets overlooked so much. The focus is always on like overdoses and deaths and people ending up addicted and it hitting rock bottom and all of that stuff. And the actual data is that most people who use drugs um, don't end up with addiction. Most people who end up with addiction recover on their own um, they don't even get any help from from anyone. And so it is really kind of like a, I mean, that community is just so, so positive in itself. Um, and it's something that I feel like most people who are not a part of it or don't don't interact with it don't actually know. And the narratives are just so skewed. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. And I mean, even like the the really dark stuff that, can come up for people who are in active addiction like I have overdosed before and I mean looking back you know 
the circumstances of it were really funny to me in retrospect. Like so much of this stuff you hear over and over, like a drug overdose is the worst thing in the world. Addiction is the worst thing in the world. And if it befalls you, like good luck to you. But honestly, like a lot of my experiences with having different drug problems, like I look back and I'm glad that I don't have those problems actively right now, of course, but there's a lot of humor in all that stuff. And there's, you know, even for people who can't find it funny, I mean, I'm kind of a gross weirdo in that way, but even if you don't find it funny, like recovering from addiction isn't all darkness and it isn't all that classic AA story of like, you were at rock bottom, but you saw the light. It's a very Christian story, which is not my bag at all. But like, it's it's not all about that. It's about lightness too. And it's about finding positive community and not just leaving behind negative community. Like there are a lot of upsides to sobriety that aren't just this dramatic, like save my life kind of thing. Like there are, there's a lot to be said for sobriety other than it's the only option left to you. Yeah. I, I love that we can have multiple different types of conversations about addiction and not all of them have to be incredibly dark and not all the stories have to have be 100% sorrow in them. And you can still look back and see some bits of joy in the story, even as you reach sobriety. I think, honestly, I've said this before, but I think there is an addiction out there for everybody. <laughs> you haven't been exposed to it yet. You're just lucky enough that you haven't. But there's something for everyone. For you, like, you know, heroin wasn't really the, the, the bugaboo. Maybe it's rum more so than heroin for you. But, like, you know, for some people it's going to be different. And, and we need to be able to discuss it in multiple different ways. And everyone needs to hear about it in ways that don't include just AA or that, like, traditional Hollywood story of hitting rock bottom and then seeing the light and being saved. And that's great for people who it works for. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. But that's not going to be everyone's journey through sobriety. And so we should share those stories, too. I think that's really important. Um, I'm so glad it, that you mentioned it, the Hollywood story, because I, I think it is so funny. Every time you see a biopic of a musician or someone who was famously a drug addict, it's the fucking same every single time, right? All the beats are exactly the same. He hits rock bottom. He goes to rehab. He thrashes around in a twin size bed for a while. He's got the sweats or the shits or something. It's just like you can predict it shot by shot almost. Right. You can't walk the line. Yeah. And they say the line that's the title of the movie. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's how everyone thinks of like heroin is like rock bottom. Someone like the worst point of their life, like risking it all, whatever, shooting up under a bridge. Um, and I mean, how many people have had like the worst things of their life from Chardonnay or like an IPA? And right. I mean, most people I know who have used heroin, like don't have those kind of same stories. So it is really skewed how it's not just Hollywood, but the, those Hollywood perceptions are definitely interesting. And yeah. I got never the thought of it. JD Vance book and movie too. <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh, that guy sucks. <laughs> that, guy sucks. <laughs> that guy totally sucks. I mean, I really, it's interesting that you put it that way. I hadn't thought of it before, but it is a very Christian sort of thing that like he was at his bottom and then he saw the light and through God's will or whatever, he rose up and he was able to cast off the demons of yeah. the addiction. <laughs> Um, let, let me ask you uh, a question here. How long, how long has it been for you? How many, how many days sober are we talking? 
Uh, in terms of exact days, I don't know, but I know I got sober on April 25th, 2022. That's from alcohol and cocaine. For uh, for heroin, it is 2014 sometime. What what happened on that date, um, the 2022 date? Well, you know, that's kind of the thing, actually. I didn't have one of those thrashing around in rehab moments. I woke up. And I was hungover, and I woke up late, and, uh, you know, I had been doing blow all night, so, it, you know, my nose hurt, and I was all stuffy and gross, and I just said to myself, like, I can't do that again. And I had actually, I mean, for drinkers especially, because alcohol is legal, and it's everywhere, and it's socially encouraged a lot of the time. When you're a problem drinker, you're probably going to say, I will never drink again, like twice a week. Right. Anytime you have a hangover, you know, or anytime you throw up and you're feeling that kind of low, embarrassed feeling, you're going to say that to yourself. But I just, I guess I just happened to mean it this time. And I mm -hmm. haven't had a drink or had any cocaine since. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, let, me, let me ask you this, you know, because your dad was so upfront with you. I know recently you got married. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and if you end up having kids, if that ends up being what you do, are you going to share with them as openly as your dad shared with you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that uh, it's one of the most helpful and generous things that my dad could have done for me. I mean, he was like kind of a secretive guy. Generally, that, that really runs in my family. It's you just you will be finding shit out about people in my family decades after they die. But he really, <laughs> I think, made a point of treating that part of his life with openness. And also something that he modeled for me that I hope I can model for my kids someday is not being embarrassed about it because I think there's still this perception that addiction is embarrassing and it's private. And I think it certainly does play out that way like for the addict in the moment I, I definitely didn't want people to to know or to sense that I was having cocaine problems because they would have told me to stop and I didn't want to stop but beyond that I mean I don't think that shame or secrecy around it is helpful for anybody I, I actually think that the more diverse array of addictions that that we can see somewhat publicly like the the more people will be able to recognize it for themselves and make informed decisions for themselves yeah that's a really that's really well said um speaking of well said i i, I really enjoy your writing and if you don't Thank mind you. i'm gonna read an excerpt from your newsletter if that's okay because do it yeah i think it's excerpt it's, i'm gonna excerpt right now i'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> excerpt like a pro here the first couple of weeks of sobriety are boring and dreary in predictable ways. The problem is that I don't want them to be the same old boring, dreary, sober weeks that everyone else has to tolerate. At parties, I smile like a baboon grinning his aggression through his teeth. I ask bartenders for syrupy seltzer concoctions and rocks glasses and seethe with my pink water. My friends go to the bathroom too often and talk at me too fast. They smash beer cans and stink of yeast. It's all humiliatingly familiar. I tell Sean he can drink. Don't worry about me. I'm fine with it. But he does drink, and I'm not fine with it. I hate that they're all having fun doing this, and I hate that I'm not. Sober, I'm a bad sport. Um, how, how did I read that? Did I read that with the inflection that you would have liked? Or did I, did I oh, yeah. No, you sound just like okay. me, actually. I feel like we're 
it's like looking in a mirror. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let me ask you this. How do you, because uh, sobriety is going to be so hard, particularly when you're uh, engaging with people in your past that are still uh, actively using. And I could see this, this is such a good description of that irritation it must feel like. How do you recommend people manage it? Should they just avoid it? Should they just avoid those triggers? Should they avoid those people? Or do they have to expose themselves to it and then just somehow deal with it? How do you recommend people handle this? You know, that's a good question. And I will say too that probably the biggest difference between quitting heroin and quitting drinking has been the emergence of that irritability because quitting heroin, it was so easy for me to not hang out with my junkie friends anymore because they only ever wanted to do the one activity and that wasn't what I was doing anymore. So we just had nothing in common, super easy to cut ties. Maybe that sounds callous, but whatever. Like when you're on heroin, it makes you pretty callous. And with drinking, drinking is everywhere and it's socially accepted and it's socially encouraged. And, uh, you know, you're probably not going to go to most parties and hang out in mixed company. And there's a bunch of people shooting up just casually, but every single party pretty much has people drinking. And I, I was definitely irritable about that for a long time. It felt unfair and it did go away. Mostly I will say something that continues to irk me that will probably irk me in some form for the rest of my life. People get drunker than they think they do a lot faster than they think they do. After like one or two drinks, people are are loosening up in a way that isn't always annoying, but you know, oftentimes. And I mean, many of those same friends that I, I wrote about that you've just quoted me being, uh, irritated with like I I still hang out with all those people and I'm not so annoyed by the fact that they drink and and even do cocaine I prefer that they don't do that latter thing in front of me but that's avoidable enough and I would say that I mean you know your mileage may vary but I think that if you can stick out those feelings of like left outness and irritation you're gonna find that a lot of the feeling left out was kind of in your head, like people by and large don't care that much whether you're drinking or not. But you'll also, you know, because it's in your head, you'll be able to work through it in time and you'll be able to ask yourself, why does it matter to me that be, that these people are doing something that they think is fun that I quit doing because it stopped being fun? Like, why why is that a problem for me? And I mean, interrogating that response of mine was actually really helpful for me in a lot of ways. And, you know, I can't pretend it never, ever hurts when my friends are just getting blasted in front of me. It, it hurts. It, it still isn't that fun, but I can also like hang out with people who are casually drinking and it's not a problem anymore. I think if you stick with it, you'll find your balance too. So I love your discussion and I mean, your writing is so good. Um, yeah. But I love your discussion of those feelings of kind of like resentment almost. I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, that's um, right. <laughs> but, but like being annoyed at that and stuff. But beyond that, even just the way that alcohol is so not even just like acceptable, but it's like a part of the culture and like everyone. I mean, you you got to take a drink. Why aren't you taking a shot? That kind of thing. Yeah. Um and so, like, I mean, heroin, yeah, it's it's totally easy 
to separate that from kind of like any sort of socialization if you need to. Um, but it it is really weird to me always how we treat these different drugs in just completely different ways. And I mean, I think even more recently, like alcohol has taken on more of that. It's kind of like the, the weekend warriors, whatever, um, work hard, play hard, what all of these things that are just part of our society. Um, it is weird. And it, it annoys me too. Um, like, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're annoyed at our friends that are drinking, even when we're drinking with them, Rax. So <laughs> drinking people are annoying. Y'all get so loud sometimes, <laughs> but I actually think that like, yeah, to your point, Ryan, there's this, this like really like winking and obnoxious way that alcohol gets discussed just uh, culturally. Like I, my husband and I just now, we were watching us a little bit of Great British Bake Off, as you do. And the joke, like every other round of Great British, Great British Bake Off, Jesus, is that Mary Berry, this like 80 year old woman who's one of the judges is just a flagrant alcoholic. And like anytime a cupcake or whatever has a little booze in it, she has to be like, oh, you know, I like that because I'm an alcoholic. And I'm just like, why is that the mode that alcohol gets discussed in? Like, it's this mode of I know it's bad for me, but it's so good. Like, why why that and not heroin? Right. Because everyone drinks and not everyone does heroin. And that's that you're you're absolutely right. The It is funny in our culture. It's like, oh, you your girlfriend broke up with you. Come on, let's get a drink. Oh, yeah. something great happened. You got a, you got a promotion. Let's go get a drink. It's yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> Anytime it's, anything an, happens. Yeah. And not to be like a conspiracy theorist here, but uh, I think that's a big win for the alcohol industry. I think they they did that on purpose very much so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, even like if your boss wants to buy you a drink, if you say no, like, wow, you're you're turning down a drink from your boss. That's yeah. so terrible. Um, but like, Bad for your career a lot of the time. Yeah, but imagine if your boss was like offering you a bump or something. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure in the 1980s that happened a lot. So yeah, but, I mean, maybe yeah. people should seek out those jobs because <laughs> <laughs> is that Wall Street? Is that still happening? Is that still a thing? Yeah. Um, it is interesting though because you, you really got a glimpse of seeing alcohol use from a different perspective. You also and people are going to maybe think this was a little bit crazy. You took a part-time job at a bar in I your in your sobriety, in the middle of your sobriety, which does sound a little sadomasochistic. But, yeah. I mean, it probably gave you a much different perspective on seeing people drink. Yeah, it did, actually. And uh, it was funny. You know, I took this job in the bar, and, of course, they don't ask you when they're interviewing you, like, by the way, do you drink? So I... Uh, just kind of pretended that I wasn't sober for a few weeks. And then it just became unavoidable. The bartenders, you know, before they have you run drinks, they ask you to taste them to make sure that they're right. Mm. And I was just like, I, okay, I can't do that. I'm sober. And everybody was like, why didn't you just say something weirdo? And I think I didn't <laughs> say something because I was trying to leave that door open for myself a little bit, you know, just in case, because part of the reason that I wrote about my sobriety, part of the reason that I tweeted about it a lot and everything is uh, I, I didn't want to leave that door open for myself. Cause I, I had left the door open every other time that I'd told myself I'm never going to drink again. 
And what do I do? I drink again. Like I wanted people kind of watching me and I wanted to, to have to stick with it for my own pride pretty much. And, uh, so at the bar, I like when I finally closed that door, it was kind of a sad feeling. And then I paid more attention to our clientele who were, you know, just Williamsburg professionals. I mean, just a bunch of like bourgeois, middle class, very nice, mostly people. But I would watch them get like wasted and and sloppy and loud and annoying and handsy and like vomit into their pint glasses some of these people people with job titles like you know content president or stuff that is like very made up whatever like really middle class respectable people and they're partying like frat boys and I'm kind of like at a certain point okay I actually do not miss this there was this moment oh my god I was waiting in line for the bathroom and I see out of the corner of my eye this shape advancing on me, and it quickly becomes apparent that I am being cornered by the cokehead girl in line for the bathroom, mm. and she just talks at me for like 90 uninterrupted seconds about how much she likes my sweater. And I'm like, holy shit, this is the first time I have ever not missed cocaine. This is the worst <laughs> thing ever. Like, is this what I sounded like? And of course it is. Oh, well, what a good perspective to get. And speaking of sloppy, loud, uh, annoying, and handsy, we're going to take a quick break for our <laughs> ads, and we'll be right back. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. We're back. So uh, let, let me ask you a, a different question here. Um, and I know this is going to sound like a silly question, but do you like being congratulated on sobriety? Oh, yeah. That's the only reason to do it. No, it's not the only reason, <laughs> but it's awesome. People, And I really like that uh, people who aren't sober think it's just the biggest deal, like, they, they go quiet and they, they almost want to thank me for my service, you know, and I, I just love that. I live for that shit. Not everyone does it and it sucks. I think everyone should have to congratulate me all the time. Yeah. We Do you think any of those people know like what the work is to be sober or like be in recovery? That's what I'm not a, a person who's like sober or in recovery. And it, it drives me crazy to see the kind of like self, um, I don't know what the word I'm thinking of, but the like congratulatory expressions as if it's like, oh, like, thanks for your service. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm joking. I, I definitely don't expect everyone to congratulate me. But I, I think that there is this uh, sometimes when people do congratulate me or make a big deal of it and they're not sober themselves, I think there's this kind of implied like I could never do that. Mm -hmm. And I don't really like 
that tone actually i don't really it makes me feel a little alien othered yeah alien yeah. like i'm like yeah. i'm a specimen like That's it's not weird. i mean it's so hard it's not weird. that hard yeah like how oh wow you're oh, okay <laughs> how can i even relate to you you're not even drunk that's you know so who weird. does that like is the worst is and i'm so sorry this is so racist but british people are the worst about it because you anything is... you want about british people it's totally <laughs> i think that's the yeah. one last group where it's super cool with everyone <laughs> it's just such a drinking country like more yeah. than here i don't know honestly if i couldn't ever go back to england because i mean everyone that i know there i know from getting way too drunk together and every time i've been there it's not even a question. In America, it's a question. Are you drinking? You go to Britain, it is never a question. And if you're not drinking, people assume either that you're dying, probably not even, because if you're dying, you would definitely be drinking. Or I don't know, just, just some kind of insane psycho murderer who's staying sober so he can pick out a victim or something. That feeling of being othered. I think that's really interesting, is that, that people... Uh start to put you in a different category. There's all the rest of us who drink, and then there's Rax over there yeah. <laughs> who doesn't drink for whatever reason. Um, you know, the the thing I want to talk about next, and I, I know Ryan has some thoughts about this, so we've got to, I want to hear what he has to say, but l let me ask you first, um, did you ever go to AA or any similar sort of meeting, and if not, why? I went one time to an in-person AA meeting. I went once on Zoom and that was a disaster. And I went once in person and it wasn't a disaster. It was just, I went in person in a moment where I was really struggling with my sobriety. And I think I was kind of expecting it to be a revelation and it wasn't one. So I didn't go back to that meeting either. I don't, mm, I'm not gonna rule out going cause I do think there could be a lot of value for me in a room full of people all in more or less the same boat as me. I think that uh, socially that could be really useful for me and I think I could be useful for them. That's a big part of why AA exists. But I really have no desire to go, if I'm honest. I don't I don't think that's in the cards for me for a while yet, if any time. I, I can see the loss of that to the other people because you do have a lot of insight. I mean, you, I have, know. A, you have a writer's sort of like mind thinking of stuff and you're probably going to come at things from a different angle but i mean it's so you, sad for them because i'm i'm basically the smartest person in the ever. world yeah, yeah just no, ever born yeah <laughs> well, they have this podcast at least to listen to yeah, so, yeah they, they have that um ryan let, let's hear your thoughts about aa um should racks go to aa <laughs> um I have a lot of opinions on AA and I have to be careful what I say because if if you say the wrong thing about AA you you can get canceled. Yeah, um, don't uh, I know we, it. Yeah, <laughs> we know that cancel culture is a, the biggest threat to humanity. Um <laughs> but no, I mean AA is very successful because it ha does have something to offer. Uh I think the what it has to offer and what it thinks it has to offer are very different things. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, for me, I would never push AA on someone and I would actually never even recommend it unless someone asked about it. Um, but I think like the sense of community and support and that kind of stuff, especially because it's such a massive organization, they have so many resources that's like really unmatched. 
Um, and I hope that someday in kind of like substance use, there can be places where people can have like conversations and can have support and talk to other people about those kind of things outside of the context that AA has that I see as a little problematic, which is that it's very religious um, and also just kind of like a weird thing in itself. I mean, if you've ever been to an AA meeting, like they push very strong coffee on you. They have a lot of like cigarette breaks, like smoke as many cigarettes as you want, because at least it's not alcohol. Um, and I mean, NA is is very similar as well. Uh, and in terms of, I mean, like for opioids, there's very good evidence-based medicines to treat like opioid use, opioid withdrawal. Um, and NA doesn't recognize any of those, even the one that completely blocks opioids, uh, Vivitrol or Naltrexone. So it's a lot of just like weird... Um, like logical fallacies kind of and like counterintuitive thinking um, and almost like delusionality to me from that regard. But it, it is a really supportive place. Um, and so, I mean, for me, when I did medical school, my like training, the only training that I got on substance use was I was required to go to multiple AA meetings. Mm. Um, and so looking back on like that wasn't that long ago i'm i'm not that old i i hope but um pretty old. <laughs> but uh that's kind of crazy to me and i don't know that like that much has really changed um because from a medical evidence perspective aa and these 12-step programs do not have any benefit of like getting people into sustained recovery preventing deaths that kind of thing um and so i'm not i'm not here to say that they don't have any benefit because they definitely do have a lot of a lot of other benefits um but as kind of like a medical from the medical side as a treatment intervention um yeah that's that's still kind of like where we are i think yeah you know we we talked about this ryan you and i when we interviewed the late author david poses um for his book, The Weight of Error, about his addiction and why AA didn't, you know, or NA didn't work for him. And um, uh, I, I agree. I think that for some people it does seem to work very well, but there's a religious component or a spiritual component at best that I don't think works for a lot of people. And it does sort of neglect, and maybe this is not on them, but maybe it's on the rest of society to remember this, that it does neglect that sometimes we need to focus on medical treatments mm -hmm. um, instead of just these things uh, and that you can't be expected to just, for some people, maintain sobriety or reach sobriety without some medical assistance uh, for alcohol or for other drug abuse too. Um, I, I, I find that sort of an interesting concept that I only learned about, I think, relatively recently because I think growing up, like we always thought you have to go to AA. Like if you're an yeah. addict, you go to AA, that's it. That's the only way to do it. I feel like there's other groups. Are there other non-spiritual versions of AA that maybe bring in more of a medical perspective, a psychiatric perspective? Is there something like that that's widely available? Or is that kind of maybe just on a case-by-case -case basis, Ryan? Not really. I mean, like support groups and that kind of thing are definitely growing and especially on like the grassroots level. And for, I mean, people who use drugs, um, that's really kind of like all there is at this point. 
is other people are are kind of providing the support that doesn't exist anywhere else. And on the flip side of, of this discussion is how kind of the like over-medicalization of substance use is also really problematic. And I mean, like the medical recovery industry, detox, rehab, whatever you want to call it, is really problematic as well um, and is like mostly non-evidence-based scammy stuff whereas like AA at least it's it's people who like are are trying to do good um whereas yeah I mean on the medical side there's a lot of like very very bad stuff that still happens um and I mean even things like petting dolphins and like doing yoga with goats are (laughs) reimbursed by like medicaid um at least as of very recently and so yeah there's just it's it's hard because it's a big gap that people need like if if you're going through something if you're trying to stop using a substance every single day whatever um talking to someone about it, like having something to do is definitely going to help. And on the one hand, you have this kind of like cult. um, And on the other hand, you can like get put in a thousand dollar a day rehab where they don't do anything because they want you to come back again. Um, So. Yeah. I mean, my sense has long been, and Ryan, maybe you can either confirm or deny this to some extent, but uh, that that void that you're talking about where nobody seems to be to have a perfect handle on what people need when they're struggling with addiction i mean that very void is a big part of why people struggle for so long and in so much silence and i think also there's probably a lot of truth to this idea that aa really kind of shits on that you do use drugs because there are so many things going wrong in your life that you have no control over. And the less control you have, the more attractive an escape looks. I mean, people, you know, you get on Twitter, every other post these days is something like, you know, some blue check jerk off complaining about homeless people, you know, taking your money and getting high with it. And it's like, what What do you want that guy to do? He doesn't have a home. What is he supposed to do all day except be high? Like there's, I think this real denial among AA devotees and maybe in, in, in the medical world too, of just how much circumstance plays a role in why people use and how much they're going to keep using unless there's a change in circumstance. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. And I think, I mean, that's, those are like objective facts. And I would take it even one step further, and not only does like AA deny this, but most of the medical profession denies the fact that people using substances a lot of the time is self-medication, um, and people have very legitimate reasons. And in a lot of situations, I mean, if someone couldn't self-medicate, like who the outcome could be much, much worse. Let's shift gears a little bit here to talk about these issues uh, in the physician population in particular and talk about the impaired physician. So I'm Ryan, I'm sure you can talk to this better than I can, but the American Medical Association defines an impaired physician as one who is unable to fulfill professional or personal responsibilities 
because of a psychiatric illness, alcoholism, or drug dependency. And I was trying to figure out numbers on this, uh, but an estimated 10 to 15% of physicians are impaired at some point during their careers, according to the AMA, the American Medical Association. That seems like an extraordinarily high number. Does that seem right to you, low, or, or what? It's really hard to say. I mean, that seems right to me. And I think, I mean, even just getting into the like verbiage that the AMA uses, which the AMA, they really need to step it up. Um, but <laughs> like, we don't use the word alcoholism anymore. Like that's not productive. Um, and so these things are like not, those aren't even objectively defined terms just a few decades ago it was normalized to have the like two martini lunch and then like go back and and do surgery or whatever um oh my god and, <laughs> and i think i mean my experience and like everyone i know in healthcare is that like drinking culture is a very big part of that um and so i mean i think it again comes down to these arbitrary distinctions between like some things are okay and so like if you binge drink on the weekend that's totally normalized um but like god forbid you develop like an opioid use disorder um and so what in not just for the ama but for your like state medical license you have to declare if you have like a substance use problem and then you have to follow up, go through all of these additional hoops and hurdles. Um, and if God forbid you wanted to go into recovery with like methadone or buprenorphine and I, even the naltrexone, again, the uh, literally something that blocks opioid effects from getting into your body completely. Um, those are, I think like still for the most part banned nationwide. Um, these all come down to kind of state medical boards and for like your specialty, whether it's nursing or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, that that's a really big problem. And yet like you, you can take your trainees out for shots um, and that's like medical education. <laughs> let, let me ask you Rax um, again, not technically a doctor, but <laughs> what what medical fields would you feel have the highest risk for uh, impairment for for addiction of some sort? What would you what would your guess be? You know, I as y'all have been talking, I'm like, I think I had one of these. I think I'd I had a doctor who I thought at the time was just a bad doctor, but now I'm looking back and I'm like, that guy was shit house drunk every time I saw him. <laughs> And he, I'm sorry to say, Kaveh was a gastroenterologist, so <laughs> I think maybe anyone who, like, their patients are anesthetized a lot of the time they see them, probably you can get away with being yeah. a little bit, you know, her -her, well, fucked up. Because <laughs> they're not going to, you know, I don't notice <laughs> They're asleep, yeah. <laughs> you know, oddly enough, it's not GI doctors. We probably have other uh, issues, but the uh, the two that are most associated are anesthesiology. For the reason you mentioned, they are like, and they have the probably the most access to these drugs. That's one of the reasons. Although there are some other theories I've read about with them. Ryan, I don't know if you heard about this one, but 
there was that theory that they were kind of exposed to like low levels of like gases because of their work. And then they slowly grow an addiction and then they go home. They tried to basically feed that. I don't I don't know if there's anything. That's to that. horrible. Jesus. Yeah. And then the other one is emergency medicine, Ryan. Uh, kind of what you do. Um, does that sound right to you? The emergency medicine part? Yeah. The anesthesia part, that's... Yeah, that's kind of... That's, that's bullshit. Oh, it's not? Uh, it's, it's not true? The, well, them being exposed to low oh, level... Right, I mean, right, 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 yeah. There's so many other people in those rooms every day who are exposed right, and right. don't go in the bathroom and inject propofol, but... <laughs> That's not a good one, I don't yeah, think. Yeah, that's, that not, that's not a no, fun one. That's not. <laughs> Actually, it's not even fun. Listen to our episode we did with an anesthesiologist named Faye Jamali, this nice soccer Persian soccer mom who is an anesthesiologist, broke her ankle and got a little extra medication to treat it. And before she knew it, she was slamming like extraordinarily high doses of IV fentanyl in the bathroom. It's just in, it's just insane. Um uh, how quickly it could happen, you know, uh, and, and it, I, I found that very interesting that, you know, that was an eye opener for me um, because that was just like, you know, that was pretty hitting close to home. <laughs> so that that was that was a, that one was really eye opening to me. So I guess I'm not too shocked that the number is 10 to 15 percent of physicians. It just seems that we would hear about it more. Um, what's happening in these cases, Ryan, when when. When actually, let me let me take a step back. What what should people do if they suspect that they a colleague is impaired or drunk or having some issue that's fucking up their medical work? What what should other physicians do? Well, so that's really the problem here. Um, obviously, I mean, if someone is impaired at work and involved in patient care then like you you have to protect those patients that that is what comes first but in terms of what you do about that person and kind of in the long term kind of methods to deal with this like don't really exist um if you tell anyone if you report them um then usually they are like mandated to certain treatment courses or uh if this is not their first time or if it's something more severe considered um like like heroin god forbid um then they might just lose their license and lose their ability to practice or or go on probation or something like that and so i mean i know physicians who have been impaired at work um and have had kind of suffered these horrible consequences and not to say that being impaired at work is okay but the there's no good system for dealing with it. And we're not helping these people get better in any way. We're kind of just like kicking them to the curb. Um, and so even someone who on their own were to seek out, I mean, like Suboxone or methadone treatment, um, if they disclose that, they could just lose their license. The problem is that we yeah. need to kind of be more supportive of this and be have like these conversations about substance use about how we take all all of the department out on the weekend and and do rounds of shots together your but department the... is cooler than mine by the way we don't we're not <laughs> just we're doing not shots together. all the time <laughs> I know, yeah ER, I, ER, I oh, see where I, the problem with er is here i can't do shots i'm too old for that <laughs> yeah you are you're very very old, you're very, very old. um so like those it. are just hypotheticals like... but yeah i mean it should be okay for someone to like acknowledge that they have a problem. It should yeah. be okay for them to want to get help. 
Yeah. yeah, and we should, I mean, as a medical profession, if we're saying that like the medical treatment for this is one thing, and then we're not even offering it to our own, um, I can't tell you how many like nurses, doctors I've interacted with, met and know who have been denied either their career or like legitimate treatment that they wanted. And that is really messed up to me. I agree. It's very tricky and it's very hard because on one hand, we do need to support them, especially if someone's trying to get help. We have to help them find ways to do that so they can maintain a career and and recover. But on the other hand, the AMA recommendation, you know, is, you know, you don't talk to them. You just deal with it. You take tickets to management and you let it be known. And, and I have to say, because of the fact that we almost all deal with patients, that makes sense to me, too. Like, I feel like that's what you have to do. If there's someone out there who's in the hospital who deals with patients and they're not make, able to make good decisions because they're impaired in any way, that that I feel like that's a red line for me. But at the same time, I absolutely agree with what you're saying, which is that these people need to, we need to be able to get them help. They need to be able to find ways to get help. If I, I mean... That if, also, though, comes down to the definition of impaired and the way that medicine healthcare does like testing and defines that and i mean it's the same way that we do it to patients with like these shitty tests for drugs and everything and so i mean like my biggest role in this is i mean interpreting drug tests probably um and they're all garbage so i mean if someone is like gets screened at work for impairment and they have a positive drug screen that doesn't mean they're impaired at all, but then that gets counted down as impairment that goes on like whatever their license. They have to report it every year. They have to do mandatory follow-up treatment, whatever. Um, and it's because, I mean, healthcare doesn't even know how to deal with drugs. The, the profession of medicine can't interpret a simple urine drug test. Um, that's like probably one of the things I deal with most in my job is how bad doctors are at interpreting a urine drug screen yeah it is it is actually vague too the way it's worded this is what i i pulled up from the medical board of california bpc that's like a business practice code uh or something like that uh bpc code section 2280 prohibits a physician from practicing medicine while under the influence of any narcotic drug or alcohol to such an extent as to impair their ability to conduct the practice of medicine safely to the public and their patients. So it's a bit vague. I mean, it's not saying they can't have, it's not actually saying there's, there can be no narcotic or drugs. It's like saying narcotic drug or alcohol to the extent it impairs their, their ability to do it. So, I mean, I'm not quite sure how to interpret that. I mean, it, it all, it sounds like is they need some test that comes back positive And then somebody who feels they were impaired, is that, I mean, is that how it's working, Ryan? Like, how, how are they determining if someone's impaired? Yeah, the determination of impairment is not really, I mean, it's not defined. There are different definitions that can be applied. Um, but so, I mean, like fitness for duty, you can say you think someone's impaired, have fitness for duty testing. And I mean, if they have like THC in their urine because they smoked marijuana, and live in a state where that's legal, and they did it outside of work, um, I mean, that can be considered Im- impaired at work. And 
this is it is the same as like I mean someone getting pulled over and doing like a field sobriety testing uh without having like a, an alcohol level or whatever um for things like marijuana these are all very subjective and I would say like approaching a hundred percent of the time uh they're not interpreted correctly and they're not even applied correctly um and it, like it blows people's mind when I tell them that a urine drug screen like being positive for something doesn't doesn't matter at all a urine drug screen being negative for something the person could be the most impaired person in the world um and and test negative for for everything that you look for um so so what's the one it's not well defined so if we had to change something in this regards into treating or to dealing with the impaired physician what would that thing be would it be better testing that's more accurate would it be um a better system of catching it early would it be better support systems for the impaired physician to sign up for safely before it becomes a problem what what would be the one thing that would be the best it would be better support systems if it is related to an impairment allowing someone to kind of like admit to that or whatever seek out help so that they they can keep their job um i think would be much better than having people try to hide this do you feel like there are specific challenges to treatment of doctors with addiction that the general public doesn't face uh, or do you feel that there are uh, that the treatment's different in any way yeah that so i'm glad you brought that up because the biggest problem in terms of so not to focus just on opioids because like i hate only focusing on opioids there's so many other things to talk about but they're the easiest example and everyone knows that like there's a big opioid problem going on um, and we have really good evidence-based treatments for opioids. So a healthcare professional who says they're buying Percocet on the street, buying fentanyl, taking home opioids, whatever it is, um, they are mandated to sobriety. They oftentimes are mandated to like AA or NA. Um, and we have like very good evidence-based medicines that the healthcare profession has been trying to push for years. I mean, these are underutilized. We need more people to have access to these things. That's why so many people are dying out in the public. Um, and then on the back end, like you're not allowed to be on Suboxone as a physician, as a nurse. Um, you're not allowed to be on methadone and have a uh, professional healthcare license. And that is kind of really, I mean, the hypocrisy there is, mind-blowing to me um but it's because people have this belief that like you would be impaired if you're taking a medicine and at the end of the day that's just like the same shitty bias and stigma that is blocking people from accessing these medications across the board someone who's on methadone every day who's on suboxone uh, is not impaired and so the definition of impairment is just so subjective and I I would like to actually just step in with an example that came up for me as Brian was talking. There is a person in my life who I'm I'm not going to say who it is and not going to blow up their spot, but there's a person who I love very much who for like decades has had problems with heroin and problems with opioids in general. And finally, 
was able through a treatment plan that he was on for a while, he was able to take Suboxone and it was life-changing. I mean, his longest ever streak of not using heroin was during his Suboxone treatment. And that went on for a while. And then he had to stop taking Suboxone for a job and within months was in jail mm-hmm. for for fucking heroin, obviously. And it's yeah. just, it's maddening because I took Suboxone when I wanted to quit heroin. It was magical. And, yeah. you know, it just does so, so much good. I've seen yeah. anecdotally over and over what what a miracle it is for people who spend years just in the doldrums of junk addiction and it's just it's really maddening to me in particular that even in the medical community the very medical community where the suboxone is like tested and prescribed and everything you you can't take it or you could lose your job lose your license even that's so fucked up yeah, absolutely. Ryan and I have seen this and among some of our friends, and we've seen the results, and they can be disastrous. So I absolutely agree. It seems like an easy enough fix. I think at the root of it, a major problem, I, I'm get, and this is my guess as to why this is an issue and why this is still uh, something that gets caught up, is that people in the medical profession still don't truly view uh, addiction as a medical problem they don't deal with it the same way think of it the same way as it was diabetes so for example if someone came in with metformin i'm not going to be mad at them for being on metformin for their diabetes i'd be like, okay good you're getting your diabetes treated i'm not saying like why can't you lose the weight on your own <laughs> why can't you handle <laughs> your blood sugars on your own you know <laughs> we have to look at it like a real problem that needs that, that we have a solution for. We have some treatments for at least. Maybe they're not 100%, but we have a treatment for it. Let's trust that treatment. Let's go with that. Um, Ryan, yeah, let's... I mean, that's why these like medicines, all of these interventions that we could be doing aren't going out there and, and saving lives like across the entire country. If at the end of the day, like the AMA and the state medical boards all think that being on Suboxone is just replacing one addiction with another and they don't want to let any healthcare professionals do it then it's no wonder that like these misinformed stigmatizing biases aren't actually going away no matter how much like research and advocacy people do okay well that's we've decided what needs to be fixed and it should be (laughs) fixed by i expect this to be fixed by the end of the week people (laughs) listeners out there um but us on this show, it is our time to close. I've kept you guys long enough. I really appreciate both you guys coming on and your perspectives on this uh, topic. Let's get some plugs in racks. Please tell everyone where they can find you, where they can hear you, all that. Yes. Uh, so Kave was reading an, an excerpt of my newsletter, which you can find at patreon.com slash dead. Uh, you can subscribe for as little as a dollar a month, but what Kaveh was reading from is a little series I've been doing called the Dry Drunk Journal, which for that you have to pay a little more. I'm not giving my innermost thoughts out for a dollar a month, sorry, but uh, you can read me there. You can buy my book, uh, which was published in 2021. That is Tacky, Love Letters to the Worst Culture We Have to Offer. I also have a book of poetry from 2018, The People's Elbow. And my podcast, Low Culture Boil, 
And I think that's just about it. Yes. <laughs> uh, great writing. Absolutely worth it. Tacky is an awesome book and I love it. And one day I'm going to have you sign it for me. Um, Ryan, where can people find you? Where Don't, don't say Twitter. Well, it's X now. Oh. No. <laughs> yeah, come on. Um, no, I don't know. I guess I have a YouTube channel, but I haven't done anything on there in quite a while. Um, I'm most active on, on Twitter, but Ryan Marino. The the Twitter, I mean, sorry, the YouTube channel is is excellent. I, I, I eagerly await new videos. I, I just, I'm clicking on it again and again. Like, what's new? Is there a new one? Is there a new one? Is there a new one? So the people want to see more Ryan Marino. We want to see you on YouTube, man. Can you can you get on that? Can you make that happen, please? Yeah, I have to grow the beard back, though. It's true. You did shave your beard. Listeners, careful listeners, usually note that I mention his beard early on in the episode and how <laughs> beautiful and majestic it is. But he did shave it before this one. It's 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 interesting. It's it's a look. It's a look. I'm sorry to have missed it. The beard. We have pictures. I'll, I'll send <laughs> okay, you some. Yeah, um, if you could. <laughs> Please, uh, if you haven't already, rate and review our show at iTunes um, and follow us if you're not already doing that. I'm assuming you probably already are, but uh, leave a review. I love reading them. Here is one from Dr. Underscore P. Williams. Uh, says, great show. Cafe does a great job of not only highlighting medical issues in the news or of concern for listeners, but does so for non-medical listeners so they can find value in the discussion. Ah, that's kind of my whole thing. Thank you. That's like my whole shtick right there, summed up. Thank you for doing that. Uh, please leave reviews. I love reading them. They warm the cold cackles of my heart. Thank you to Nadine for help with production. Uh, and thank you guys both so much for coming on. <laughs> thank you for having me. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.